So hello for this third session now. Uh, we're going to have quite a few people talking. Um, so I'd like to introduce you to Alison McKenzie from the University of Sheffield and a colleague, Kimberly Sims, as well as Rebecca McCann's, Mac, sorry, McCann's, yeah, <laughs> from uh, King Egbert School and Emily Martin from the Eccleswood School from Sheffield. And this is, I think this uh, session will be a really, really nice one to follow on from, from the previous ones because we had the bigger picture, we had to look at the how it works and um, uh, what, what things are going on by the participation at the, lo uh, at the national level. We had a, a bit of a chat about what is going on in London and, and the, in the bigger cities and then we're going to look at how relationships between schools and universities are happening and are being forged um, in Sheffield. Great, thanks Rita. Can everybody hear me okay? Has everybody had their lunch? Got something to drink. Good. Good. Okay, as Rita said, I'm Alison McKenzie. I work in the outreach team at the University of Sheffield uh, on partnerships and communications. And I'm lucky to be joined today by Kimberly Sims, my colleague, and also Rebecca McKerns and uh, Emily Martin, who are school teachers both from schools in Sheffield. Um, and Kim's and Bex are going to let me call them Kim's and Kim and Bex from now on, which is great. Um, what we're going to cover, uh, my part will be about 15, 10, 15 minutes or so, um, and then I'm going to hand over to Kim to talk for a bit, and I'm going to hand over then to, uh, to, to the teachers. Um, in my part, we're going to look at the context for developing links between schools, colleges and universities, this university's mission in relation to widening participation, a very brief overview of how it does this, and an equally brief summary of outcomes. And I really want to highlight that it's a dynamic situation changing over time. And Kim will say more about our current work, particularly about developing a more evidence-led and data-led data approach, which is quite timely given the conversations this morning. And the, the, when I've asked the teachers to talk, it's incredibly difficult for teachers to get out of school. So um, really, really appreciate them coming. Um, I've not scripted what they've got, they're going to say. It's quite unpredictable. I was joking at lunchtime, I may have to hand my notice in at the end of the day, but uh, hopefully not. So if our theme is uh, relationships, how healthy are they? Um, do we need a relate manual? Um, are we in, in need of guidance? There isn't a manual for this sort of work, for widening participation by means of relationships between schools and colleges and in some ways the conditions for good relationships really aren't that propitious in the sector uh, in fact I was talking with a colleague from Warwick earlier Paul and we were talking about the fact that we are we work within a country where there are sep separate po uh, political decision making structures for schools and universities and often we're seeing situations with ministers in beers and DfE who seem not even to collaborate, let alone consult. So, in general, we're working in a situation where we don't look at education as a whole, and that makes these connections much, much harder to establish. It was interesting, um, uh, also talking to Sue Webb earlier, and I was thinking about lifelong learning, that what we need is a kind of lifelong learning approach to, uh, to this, this issue. But in fact, the, lifelong, the term lifelong learning now equates to mature, which has been kind of 
cut off completely anyway in the current context. It doesn't mean the whole life cycle. So also, if you looked at, at the relationships between schools and universities from the outside world, you would think that this issue is a battleground. Just some uh, headlines from The Guardian, which I'll give, give you a minute to read. They're very recent, from December to February 2016. You might think that it's also all about access to elite universities, and little credit is given to the broader sector, particularly to post-92s, for the heavy lifting that they're doing in relation to access and WP. The terms of the debate about sector relationships are set out in this adversarial fashion and there's often a back-and-forth, tit-for-tat series of exchanges where schools and universities blame each other for lack of progress with access and WP. It's also really hard to widen terms of the debate. I'll show you an example. I'm going to read it out. Apologies. This is from the Times earlier this month on February the 2nd. We have a limited range of opportunities for post-school training that don't involve incurring significant student debt for many who would be better suited to an apprenticeship. This is a wasted opportunity which countries like Germany would never tolerate and ministers should stop, should stop pretending that entry to a top university is the most important measure of social mobility. You can't fix social mobility without providing real choices for young people in their school years. We also need an economy capable of supporting their greatest ambitions, whether in industry or the arts, whether as an apprentice or as a university student. Anybody know who said that? Anybody want to hazard a guess? I know somebody does. They're smiling at me. Sounds a bit like a head teacher. In fact, it's Professor Sir Keith Burnett, who's the Vice-Chancellor of this university. I think it's, it was a very reasoned piece arguing for a broader perspective on the access debate and the relationships between schools and universities. But interestingly, when I talked to the media team in preparing for this talk, they told me what, uh, what the title of the article that the Times proposed was. And that the, the, article, the title that they wanted to go with was Blame Schools, Not Universities for Holding Back the Poor. <laughs> So now I've done the Guardian and the Times and we feel all balanced and, you know, um, equal. Um, quite properly, as you can imagine, we, we made them drop that title. But it tells you quite a lot about the fractious environment that we're in. So what is, what is it like on the ground? Both sides of the schools universities divide have experienced unprecedented change. In outreach, we've had to explain increased fees to very disadvantaged young people and families and do our best to stop it from turning them off blind to university. Unrestricted rec recruitment means more competition between universities, ironically, especially for WP pupils. Keen to se secure applications, some universities are wooing young people with incentives from cash to unconditional offers. Quite often not very popular with schools, and I'm sure Rebecca will... Bex will tell you a bit more about that. Teachers report a lot of pressure on students, feeling like they had to suddenly be adults at 18, making huge choices about large sums of money. As you all know, the school landscape has also changed massively beyond recognition, even more so, I think, than HE. Academisation has removed much local control and accountability. It's also made it much more difficult for us to access large numbers of schools 
and intelligent about their characteristics and circumstances via the channel of the local authority. Schools are having to grapple with new governance systems, a sea of new qualifications, with moving goalposts on grades and with the loss of universal information, advice and guidance services. And this all impacts hugely on our work. We also, another thing to note is some universities have lost teacher training and that's another touch point, if you like, which makes some universities less familiar with what's happening in schools. The key thing that we have referred to at a number of points earlier today is aim higher and the loss of aim higher. But we've, we've all got to work in this new landscape. So I'm just now going to tell you a bit more about what we do. Our mission in the University of Sheffield Outreach Team is to work with schools, colleges and communities to identify the most able, least likely in our communities and support and encourage them to continue in education. This could mean just staying on until post-16 and for some, some young people that we work with that's very, very important. It could mean going on to a local university or it could mean going further afield. We work in three main ways. At this university we work firstly through sustained cohort-based programmes for pre- and post-16 learners. Much research has pointed to the value of sustained engagement combining a range of interventions, IAG subject work, mentoring, summer schools, and we now have six post-16 programmes which combine these and offer successful completers an alternative reduced offer here at the University of Sheffield. So contextual, but contextual with a lot of preparation and support. We also have two major pre-16 programmes which prepare students for choices at 16 using a similar combination of methods. These programmes have been developed in close collaboration with teachers over a number of years. I can't stress that enough. That is absolutely critical. We can have great ideas, punt them out into the community, but it really doesn't make any difference if it doesn't work for a teacher and work for a pupil in the local school. And one of those six post sixteen program, uh, one of one of those pre sixteen programs. Sorry, Emily will talk about a US and schools mentoring. Secondly, we offer a very comprehensive program of inward and outward visits to schools or onto campus. We try as much as we can to deliver what schools and school and college colleagues and learners need, and this can include EPQ preparation, subject focused work, or support with study skills. Again, particularly on the latter, I'm sure Bex will say more. Thirdly, and this is probably most important, um, we work collaboratively. We work within our team collaboratively, within our um, outreach team. We work collaboratively with internal faculty colleagues to offer additional resources. For example, we have a school's chemistry lab. And secondly, with external partners such as HEP, the Higher Education Progression Partnership, and HEP and Co, the NCO, the National Collaborative Outreach Network, that's been most recently established. We also have Excellence Hub and Realising Opportunities. These are all local, regional and national partnerships, respectively, which help us reach further afield to learners who we might not otherwise make contact with. And lastly, within the University of Sheffield, we, we take a life cycle approach to widening participation. So we track pupils before and students during their studies and also look at graduate destinations of widening participation students. 
supporting students with alumni links and this year with grants for postgraduate studies specifically directed toward WP students. I mentioned performance so I thought it'd be useful to just give you a, a very small um, indication of how we are measured against HESA targets. <coughs> this is our last available report from 1415. But the most important thing that I want to say is here that numbers don't tell us everything. We've had a lot of discussion this morning about how problematic data is, measures are, tracking, control groups. They are all extremely difficult to nail down. But we are practitioners. That's the difference between what was happening this morning and what was happening, what was happening in this talk this afternoon. We're telling you like it is from the field. And we, we can't afford to wait for the perfect measure to come along because by the time we've done that, lots and lots of young people and lots of adults will have missed the chance to go to university. As I said, numbers don't tell us everything. We work with over 25,000 learners and families. We do work with faculties, with partners, which encompasses public engagement as well as access and outreach. So not everything can be boiled down to meeting or missing a benchmark. But broadly speaking, we're making significant progress to where HESA and OFFA think we should be. We're doing well, but we're not resting on our laurels. Far from it. So... Finally, coming back to our theme of relationships, I, if I was to summarise this, I've talked about this slightly dysfunctional world within which we live where um, universities are split off in policy-making terms from the rest of the education sector. There's no magic bullet for us in terms of solving the question of how to link effectively with schools and colleges. As you can tell in what I've described, we deploy a range of strategies, steps and underpinning partnerships. We exist within an increasingly fractured and quite fractious at times sector. We may have lost aim higher, but we've collectively created its legacy organisation, HEP, funded by our Sam by Sheffield Hallam, and more recently HEP & Co, funded by HEFKE. I won't talk too much about these collaborative partnerships, as I know Jackie Powell um, the partnership manager will cover this um, in the next event with Carol and James, my, my colleagues here today. We're all sure, we're all, we're all I'm sure aware of South Yorkshire's historic educational underperformance and sadly some local boroughs are still languishing at the bottom of GCSE league tables. This collaborative area-wide approach that these organisations bring in working with us is essential in addressing this challenge. But we've also taken quite specific steps at the University of Sheffield. It's got a proud history of community engagement dating back to its founding and penny donations and engagement with local community and the long tradition of extramural and adult learning which is still continued in the Department for Lifelong Learning and many other universities have lost their mature, dedicated mature provision. These links have served it well, but it would be really true to say that I think there was a step change in 2010 and 2011 with all the changes to the HE sector that were brought forward after the Brown report. At the request of the Vice-Chancellor here, we organised a large-scale consultation exercise over the issue of increasing tuition fees. 
And the VC here, unlike some university leaders, was quite vocal in his opinions and his opposition of many aspects of, of, the, of the initial report and the proposals. Although fees did indeed rise to, uh, across almost all providers in the sector, we established a tradition of consulting with partners, and this continues today in the Education Stakeholder Group, a group that meets twice yearly chaired by our PVC for Learning and Teaching, in our teacher conferences and in direct links between outreach and school and college staff every day. At the same time, we have established our own widening participation research and evaluation unit, which is curating today's event. They too, as you well know, are strongly engaged in work with local schools to establish the impact of our outreach provision and gauge attitudes towards some of the changes that we've witnessed in the sector. More recently, in 2015, we restructured our outreach team and we refocused our objectives for outreach and widening participation. One of the key outcomes of this work was committing to something that we've wanted to do for some time and have been engaged on a long journey towards, which is moved to a more data and evidence-based approach to working with schools and colleges and targeting outreach work. We've always done it, but we've sometimes lacked the resources and the tools to do it as effectively as we wanted to. This will undoubtedly have its challenges as well as its advantages, but I'm going to ask my colleague Kim Sims and my teacher colleagues to take over this discussion at this point. Hello, so um, I'm Kim. Um, I'm here to talk to you about how we manage relationships with schools in this narrative of increased evidence-based practice, um, reporting and spend on outreach that we're in at the moment and reflect around how we work across these three key questions um, in the funnel on the slide. So it's probably worth um, talking now that the kind of strategic direction of most able, least likely, as we sort of um, have coined it into a quite a nice uh, nugget, the definition of it slightly varies depending on the kind of um, outreach that we're talking about. So if we're talking about sustained schemes, then they're quite focused and targeted on the individual. If we're talking about our inward and outward visits or our partnership work, then it becomes more of an individual and a school-based decision on who we work with and who we would classify as um, appropriate for our, our um, in investment in terms of time and money and we would classify them as WP. Um, so most, the most able discourse then links to an attainment so that we're not setting up false promises or hope of, to students who fundamentally would not have the appropriate entry criteria to access a, a group um, university. We do offer a range of um, op opportunities for people who would class as most able um, but that might not necessarily have our stringent Russell group entry criteria. And then the least likely characteristics, I know Stephen spoke this morning about least likely and that we're, we're working within a pool of, the, are we talking about the more general least likely to access education or are we talking about the least likely to access um, education who would still have the five GCSEs and the GCSEs that we would want um, as a Russell Group institution. So it, just to sort of clarify here, we are talking about least likely for the sustained schemes with the appropriate entry criteria so, and for that we would use a basket of widening participation measures such as first generation in the family to enter university and um, free school meal eligibility that kind of thing 
So, thinking about these um, three questions then, what are the outcomes of our outreach and widening participation work? Now, as a practitioner in um, outreach and WP, there are a range of outcomes that we are working towards simultaneously and they vary depending on who's setting the agenda. Um, so we are, have set up our widening participation research and evaluation unit who do the um, evaluation of our activities and look at the outcomes for individuals as well as um, looking at the research agenda of how students will progress from outreach through um, the student life cycle. And um, in terms of the data that I'm working with, we're looking at admissions data and the destination survey um, information that we collect from our outreach students to then see where they end up so that if they, like like Sol's example um, this morning, it's not just counted as a win for us. If they come to us and we work with them, we would look at it more holistically as an outcome um, so that they, they went to any other institution um, or made a, dis a decision not to go to university but um, had an, a kind of an interaction with the university and made a conscious decision that it wasn't for them, we would still see that as a, a positive um, as well. And um, in terms of the more data focus, we have um, subscribed to the Higher Education Access Tracker, or HEAT, which allows us to track the students that we've worked with through the Department for Education data, through um, into the university through HESA data, and then hopefully it through um, graduation in Delhi. I'm looking at the Higher Education Access Tracker colleagues, but <laughs> <laughs> no pressure there, Rachel. Um, then the kind of one of the big questions about what are the out outcomes for our um, schemes, though. As much as it depends on the specific scheme, so we have a mentoring scheme that would want to work um, closely with students and support students who might need that extra sort of soft touch weekly intervention but that might not need to come into a school but might want more one-on-one -on -one support and need the role model and um, there's a, I guess a kind of outcomes that we would want as a university for those students but there would also be an outcome that the, the staff who working in school selecting the students would also want and it's about marrying those up um, fundamentally and ensuring that our relationships are good enough so that we understand what each um, I guess stakeholder is wanting from these interventions and making sure that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet effectively and that the outcomes that we're um, wanting are appropriate for these students so if we're looking for an academic outcome we're selecting students who need that academic outcome if we're looking for a role model and more of a social outcome we're, we're selecting the appropriate students um, and working with those students now i looked at this this morning and um, the question are we working with the correct students unfortunately i forgot to put my little um quote marks around the word correct so <laughs> massive apologies for that um the, the correct students we are working with data that allows us to um look at students when they apply for sustained schemes and make decisions on a, again a basket of indicators <coughs> so that we're looking at the whole student so they might not meet necessarily our um benchmarking criteria or the criteria that we have to report on um, but they have some extenuating circumstances, some personal circumstances who, that they would then be um, benefit from our work um, from the university's point of view we also have the he's accountable students so come from state schools come from certain local um, areas that we also have to um, be aware of and, and, and work into our targeting criteria and think about how winding participation is defined both by us, by 
the kind of broader national agenda and then also work with schools to understand how, who they would feel would be most appropriate for us to work with. So their pupil premium students, free school meal students, those who they would feel would just need a bit of a push or um, some extra support. So there's a kind of a wide definition of widening participation and competing factors in the um, selection of our students and I guess that's where my job becomes more kind of difficult in setting up a targeting um, guidance is that there are all these competing um, agendas, competing situations and, and fundamentally we're, we're dealing with individuals so each individual needs to be looked at as an individual and it's making sure that that message is really communicated very clearly across all partners and all stakeholders. Again, are we working with the correct schools? Correct schools. Um, so we are using data from the Department of Education to help us select schools and we're working on data that's been um, created for us by the Higher Education Access Tracker um, to look at schools who've got lower than national average attainment and try and work in those schools um, predominantly for our sustained schemes. However, we are working as on the principle that there are students who would be classed as widening participation students in all schools, as um, was discussed this morning. So we're trying to work on a, a model of um, schools targeting that's based on quite an inclusive approach. So we will look at schools um, for our sustained schemes where we're just looking for a few students from a range of schools and we will work in a wide variety of schools. If we're wanting to do an inward outward visit, um, then we would want to be working <coughs> in schools where there is a higher percentage or likelihood of working with widening participation, using a broad definition, of, of students. <coughs> and it's about communicating those messages and managing the relationships with schools so that schools kind of understand what we can um, offer them, and, but also we understand what schools are wanting from us as well. And I'm imagine that colleagues will talk later about how we've managed those relationships with uh, individual schools. Ooh. Sorry. A little preview there for everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I thought about the kind of key questions that I'm reflecting on at the moment. And then for me, it's really important, this balancing act that's going on. So it's about using data intelligently, both at, both at the individual level and at the um, local geodemographic level, at the school level, and trying to understand the caveats of the data, um, what it can tell us, and also fundamentally what it can't tell us, and trying to make decisions intelligently based on what we've got with this, the data that we have available to us. Also, um, a lot of the data relating to widening participation on an individual level is self-declared, and so it's having an awareness of the issues around self-declared data um, and the national agenda that's going on um, with different uh, measures. Then there's a balancing act about communicating this effectively, because what I've basically said today is, well, it depends. So the <laughs> who we work with, how we define WP, and who the correct schools are depends on the situation and depends what we're offering and it's about how we communicate those messages effectively um, and that takes time and that also takes really good relationships where you can listen and work quite closely with the schools that you're wanting to engage with and understand um, perspectives um, and also for me the kind of big learning curve because I started in this role in, in July August is that there's a lot of 
um, history in many of these relationships and there's a lot of practical understanding um, that practitioners have, teachers have and that is sort of in lots of um, different aspects of the university and it's in, it's in lots of you can't almost put your finger on it, it's quite intangible how these, um, this practical knowledge is, is demonstrated and when it's, it's only when you present somebody with a list and say what do you think of this, they say well that, that won't work because we've tried working with this school before or we've, we've faced these challenges before and so it's, it's about um, having that effective communication and my final point would be that a lot of these um, relationships have been forged in quite tough times and over a number of years we're working in less than ideal situations quite a lot of the time in our, um, how we communicate and manage um, relationships with schools in the widening participation and kind of agenda and overarching <coughs> messages. And so that's why we've, this is the kind of key bit of when we're looking at who is the correct school. So we can't stop working with people and um, because they, you know, all of a sudden have done better than we expected in their GCSE performance. We have to, we have to respect these relationships and think about the the broad measures of WP and the broad understanding of WP that we've currently got. So that would be my two pence for there. So <laughs> I'm going to hand over to um, Bex to talk now about how these relationships happen from her perspective. Hi. Um, well, I'm the director of uh, a sixth form in Sheffield. Um, just to give you a bit of context of what that school looks like, it's um, right on the edge of the Peak District. I look out of my office onto glorious rolling hills. Um, it's in a very leafy suburb um, of Door. Um, and the majority of people that know our location believe that our school, therefore, is made up pretty much of white middle class. But in fact, it's not. It's a truly com comprehensive school that we're incredibly proud of. 40% of our students that come to us aren't actually from that white middle class background. They are from the Aberdale Road corridor that comes all the way into the city and from some quite deprived postcodes. Um, so that actually makes us, I suppose when you look at the school, you believe its setting is actually very different to the context of what the pupils are bringing. And for us, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, we have got in year 12, for example, we've got about 15% of our cohort are the first generation to go to university, although that's the data that we get, we're being given by them, of course, that's self-declared. Um, and actually, we're starting to collect that data much earlier on now, so we're collecting that data from year 9, year 10, and moving onwards so we can be very targeted with our support once they arrive to us. We find it difficult with students that join us because we don't have that knowledge of their backgrounds and we don't have their, that knowledge of their families. And so there's some quick work that needs to be done with those students when they arrive so that we can really tailor-make that support for them. We've got about 300 in sixth form. We've got excellent results. And again, slightly different about our context is that we have mixtures of A-levels and BTECs. And certainly it's one thing we've discussed, but really, you know, universities' openness to BTEX is an area that really we need to explore as a school with the partnership, um, because it's not always completely clear to students that do that combination of A-levels and BTEX as to really who's going to accept them and which directions. And we know 
that obviously they can be very, very independent, very smart learners that go on the BTEX, and it's making sure they're not seen in our school, in our context, as any less than our A-level students. Um, we actively encourage university as a progression. We think it's, a, it's not just the academic success, it's actually life. You know, it's going out, it's being independent. We are seeing a much greater increase in students that are going on to apprenticeships, and we're particularly pleased that the universities here in Sheffield, and we're fortunate we've got obviously two fantastic universities, but we're very fortunate that they're starting to look at that apprenticeship routine, and that is becoming an area where we're spending much more time giving information, advice, and guidance. Um, I talked, so currently we take part in SOMES. Um, what, do you know what SOMES is? Don't ask what it stands for. <laughs> Go on. It's- Thank you, it's the medical one, a doctor's dentistry and they've also got Discover programmes and we've been really fortunate to have, we've got representatives from all of our student body on all of those different courses Um, and actually in preparation for today I went and asked one of them about what it was and that really helped, he's on the course and what it was that helped and he said it was about giving him the confidence that he wouldn't necessarily have had to to go university, he called it going alone, and actually coming here and having a mentor at university has been really crucial. The terribly sad thing is I also had a conversation with a girl who said that she's thinking about dropping out of school, who is on uh, ADOPT, and that's because her, her family have said that she's spending too much time on her studies and that she's not helping out enough at home, so they want her to drop out altogether. So these are conversations that we're having ongoing with our students. Um, the support from the, we have great support from both universities who come in and open up these conversations about progression. Um, we use and abuse them at times. We have um, given our entire cohort over to the Sheffield University and Hallam actually and said just deal with them all day and they've done a fantastic <laughs> job. Um, and actually managing aspirations and getting students to university is a, is a key area. I would say if we're just talking about the widening participation cohort, Um, We advertise as much as we can and we target those students to try and apply for those courses, adopt in SOMES and discover. Um, But we have to be careful that just those students that hit on the the edge aren't discriminated or aren't forgotten about. Because actually, because we've got students that arrive at us, we know that our GCSE portfolio, if you like, is fantastic and a B really means a B and A really means an A. But when you're taking students from across the city, you don't know if if they're the most able but actually they've really had not the best teaching and they've really got that B, but really through their own hard work compared to anyone else. So we are very conscious that while we can get people onto these courses, actually it's the kind of ones that sit off the side. And again, I think there's some work that we can do with our partnership there to make sure that they don't don't get forgotten. I think most of the things that the WP students have talked to me about is the lack of conversations that they're having at home. You know, when I was thinking about university, although neither of my parents went to university, my mum was very keen that we talked about the progression routes, we talked about what was out there, we talked about careers. But actually, if you speak to our WP students, that, those conversations aren't necessarily happening. And I think that, again, that's something that we need to look into to kind of create um, and, and really encourage those conversations. You know, they haven't thought about things like work experience. And, and basic things, which I find really interesting, which is... My dad wants me to be a doctor. My mum really wants me to be a dentist. And if they fall off even the slightest 
chance of becoming a doctor or a dentist, nobody will look at a medical career. Nobody will look at anything. So buying, um, biomedicine is not valued by those families because it's either, you know, you've got to make this, my sons are going to be a doctor, or there's no point in going to university for nine grand. So it's about, you know, those understanding of universities as well. So we have, with, this, with um, the university, um, sneakily, I have to say, we became aware that we were going to have a funding deficit in sixth form because our, our students weren't going to be full-time. So, again, with the relationship we had um, with the university, we, dis- we designed together to Discover Study Skills Online, um, which was some modular programmes that students could study at home or at school. Um, it meant that they were doing independent study for 30 hours. That 30 hours effectively meant that they were becoming full-time students for us, so it meant that we weren't penalised um, by what we were offering. And actually it meant that we could... The university came up with some modules about becoming an independent learner, time management, research techniques, etc. And our students were then able to go and upskill, if you like, um, to what a university student should be. Um, again, it's worked successfully from one side, but actually there could be some work done on, um, well, getting the students necessary to f- compete all the modules and things like that. So there's some house, you know, some housework um, and some, I think, just collection of evidence that we need. So we've been very, very fortunate. Um, my, in- well, my involvement on the educational stakeholders group, I think, has been the biggest thing for us. We are in such a landscape of changing education, the linear move, we're now going to scales, the, in, the introduction of new courses such as core maths, which it appeared after a meeting that universities weren't aware that we were a pilot school for core maths and that was just coming out, this was a couple of years ago I think. But actually it's a real opportunity for me to feel less nervous because universities are actually in exactly the same position as us that that you know, we're looking at the same changes just two years, two years later, um, and building those relationships so that we both feel confident with what is happening has been really, really key for us. I always come away from those meetings feeling very positive. So, yes, there are things to do. I think certainly making sure we don't miss out on that middle band of students is really key for us. Um, looking at the use of BTECs and apprenticeships is going to be really key for us and developing some of the stuff that's already there, like the Discover Study Skills Online, and looking at how we utilise that better. Um, But uh, ultimately, keeping those relationships open is just crucial to us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Emily Martin. Um, (coughs) Apologies, my voice is going a little bit. Um, I'm from... (coughs) Sorry. I'm from Ecclesfield School. Um, It was rated good in its last Abstead, but we are due another one, so that that might change. Hopefully not, though. our attainment is below national average. We've actually had a two-year dip the last two years. Um, we have uh, we we pull a really high number of um, what are traditionally CD borderline students, and that's hit us really hard with things like changing of grade boundaries and um, all those other national sort of um, those factors that have, that have, yeah that has hit us quite hard. We don't wrestle our levels though, so there's lots of things in place. Um, we're in quite a different position to King Egbert's because we're only 11 to 16. So in terms of that clear progression route through to university and the UCAS applications and everything else that's that direct link with the university we don't have as such thank you <laughs> um, we don't have as such because we are just to, um, just up to 16 we are an absolutely enormous school though um, 
we've got 1,750 students, 1,749 students currently, um, and we're oversubscribed every year, which causes its own um, its own issues. The, the local authority do like to give us more than we can actually take, um, which has its own challenges. Um, but although we're only up to 16, we obviously have the, the applications to colleges and we do need to think about those future career paths um, in the conversations that we have with students and the things that we put in place. Um, we have a career service that um, that's just achieved its gold, its gold award. It's a fantastic career service. Um, so our, and, and they also support... Um, well, they support our students in, in terms of their future progression, so our needs, our neat figures are, are always um, incredibly low. Um, the, it's, it's sort of quite negligible in the numbers that we have that, that qualify for that. Um, in terms of our relationships with the university, we've predominantly used, um, it's the US in schools, and that's the mentoring programme that we use for key stage three students. Um, they also support some tier 10 students, but that's more in terms of in-class support, doing some small group interventions, mass interventions, for example. Um, but on the whole, it is aimed at key stage three. Um, that was, that's the case for the school that I'm working in currently and also in the previous school that I worked in as well, which is Firth Park, which, um, which is just down the road from Ecclesfield, so I didn't go very far, um, but has a significantly high proportion of um, pupil premium students or free school meal students. That was almost half um, the school population, whereas in my current school at Ecclesfield, um, it's closer to about 26%, which I believe is about national average. Um, so it's... It, Again, similar to King Egbert's, it is a truly comprehensive school. It's not very diverse, um, which can be can, can be quite dull at times. <laughs> it's not very diverse in terms of um, ethnicity and languages, which my previous school was. Um, there are sort of dozens and dozens of languages, um, but we are diverse in terms of um, student background, um, and that that is reflected in the school. In the school figures. We do have the similar challenges in terms of conversations that go on at home. Um, we do have the uh, a sort of some with some parents, especially sort of parent fear of anything that sort of any sort of institution, I suppose. Um, so even inviting them in school for parents' evening can sometimes prove as quite a challenge for some parents. Um, and certainly, any conversations about future aspirations isn't isn't on the agenda. Um, but that's where the the mentoring in schools programme has sort of come into its own. Really, we have ten percent of our current year nine cohort. Um, we have thirty five students on the on the programme at the moment, and that's with seven mentors. Um, and they all have one-to-one -one sessions with the mentors on a rotation basis so that they don't hit the same lessons each time um, and they do things like the campus visit which was uh, which was always proves really popular um, the university are really well it's a, it is a really finely tuned program now so they do things like um, monitoring the sort of monitoring visits to make sure that things are all right and to quality assure the the provision that's in place and that's that's been something that's been quite reassuring from a school perspective because um, you, you obviously want to know that the mentors that are there have been well trained and that they sort of continue to provide high level um, support for those students because that's not something that we have the capacity to monitor day in day out ourselves um, in terms of future years our funding although in, in real terms our funding is you know stays the same um, that we you know we, we stand to run a massive deficit over future years with obviously national insurance contributions going up and pay and all the other things um, obviously that's not unique to us at all um, but our capacity as a school is is feeling the squeeze already um, and these programs actually provide something that we otherwise wouldn't be able to to do at all this wouldn't even um, sort of it wouldn't even 
be anywhere near the top of the list, not because it's not valuable, but just because that's where we are in terms of capacity in schools and, and budgets and what we can provide for students. Um, there's one person that I do want to tell you about. Um, there's a, there was a boy called James um, who was on the programme last year, comes from a single parent family, no, um, no previous access to any higher education in the family before. Um, and he's since done, he did a speech at the celebration event that happens at the end of the year. And it was absolutely beautiful and he, 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 was, he was stunning. Um, and his mum was incredibly proud and she was quite emotional. And it's, it's, the university's actually kept in touch with James and asked, sort of featured him in magazines and various other things which his mum sort of frames and puts <laughs> up at home and then knows me to tell me about it. Um, but the students like James, and I asked James, you know, what was the difference for, for you? Why did this programme make a difference? And he had a really strong relationship with his mentor, Joe. And he said, you know, it's just offered a, an insight into a different alternative future for him. And he said that, you know, he now, and he, he had such a good relationship with Joe, I think he sort of quite wants to just follow in Joe's footsteps, actually. And he sort of, he's really interested in doing politics at university now. And, um, and he said, you know, I, I don't necessarily just want to go to Sheffield University. He said, it's not about just thinking that's the one place I want to go. He said, but now, actually, he's it's, it's opened up a whole sort of new um, set of options for him, which he didn't realise that he had available to him and that we certainly wouldn't have had the opportunity or the capacity to go into that level of, um, that level of detail with him. So he's the shining star from last year, but there are certainly other students um, that benefited in a similar way. <clears throat> Others less so in terms of having somewhere defined for them to be in, um, in three or four years' time. Others it was just in case of them focusing more on their studies and actually knowing that they did need a plan to get somewhere and just having some sort of um, channeling of their energy and putting it to good rather than evil in some cases <laughs> um, was, really, was really helpful. Um, the in terms of the, uh, the criteria for this year, it changed with an increased focus on academic um, achievement and that meant that some of the students that were eligible last year haven't, aren't eligible um, this year and it means that some of the outcomes for those students will be slightly different because we've, we've selected students that, um, that haven't had or wouldn't have um, that family that went to higher education for example, that um, they do fall in the wider participation group, their pupil, all of ours are pupil premium. Um, they might have got there anyway because they're sort of focused and they're, they're sort of quite self-driven students, um, but this is something that can, that can certainly help secure that more than, than just sort of leaving it to chance. Um, I think that's everything. That's everything I can say. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just summing up. That's a, a, a sort of range of perspectives. Mine more from the kind of policy and context. Um, from Kim's perspective, the work that we're trying to do with data, um, but really most importantly from the teachers, the fact that they value the fact that the university is trying to see things from their perspective, and I think that's probably the most important thing to take away from.